It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to a special episode of FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and we're sitting here just as Theresa May has announced there's going to be a general election on the 8th of June. I'm delighted to be joined by political commentator Miranda Green, political columnist Janan Ganesh, and political editor George Parker. So, George Parker, this really is the most extraordinary news. There's been a lot of speculation on Westminster Theresa May or may not, as she was termed, call a general election. Why do you think she's chosen to pull the trigger now? Well, I'm told that she made the decision whilst walking in the Welsh hills with her husband over Easter. There have been a number of factors obviously playing into her calculation. One is the extraordinary opinion polls showing the Tories more than 20 points ahead of Labour. There will be the recognition that she can't get some of her domestic policy reforms through, including grammar schools, without her own mandate. But I think also there was this dawning realisation that the timetable for Brexit was looking sticky given the fact that there was a general election scheduled for 2020. And we've seen in the last couple of weeks, Theresa May edging towards an admission that Brexit would take longer than planned, that we might go into a transition period for several years, which could include free movement of people, possibly even the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. That would have been hard to sell to the British public in 2020 if we hadn't fully broken our links with Europe. And I think this has given her a bit of extra time to deliver a smoother and more orderly Brexit. Is there any doubt in your mind that this is not going to be a big win for the Conservatives? You know, even if the polls are not entirely accurate, it does look like she's going to completely walk this. You think so? Elections throw up their own weird dynamics. And, you know, what are the risk factors for Theresa May? I guess one of the risk factors is that this election becomes a rerun of the referendum in some ways. And I'm sure the Liberal Democrats will be offering the public a second vote on the terms of a Brexit deal, trying to rerun the referendum. I think the Liberal Democrats will make some gains against the Tories, particularly in the south of England and the south-west. But it's hard to imagine how that could do anything other than put a small dent in what will be, we expect, a whopping majority for Theresa May, because the Conservatives are very confident of making gains against Labour in the north and the Midlands, more than offsetting any seats they might lose to the Lib Dems in the south. So barring, you know, some unexpected outcomes, and there have been plenty of those in British politics in the last few years, looks like she's made a pretty rock-solid bet on the outcome of this election. And what's the mood in Westminster amongst Conservative MPs? Because MPs I'd spoken to were one of the big barriers to calling an election. They didn't necessarily have the funds or the impetus or the energy to start hitting the campaign trail again. It's now every year. We had the general election, the EU referendum, and now another general election. And I think a lot of them were caught quite off guard by this and might not be entirely happy with the Prime Minister's decision. No, I think that's definitely true. And um, as you say, MPs don't like fighting elections. It's not very long since they had the last one. And a number of them will lose their seats. A lot of them would have preferred to wait until we have the boundary review. All told, I think that MPs will have been as surprised as many of the people sat around the Theresa May's cabinet table today by this decision. But as I said, I think there are a number of factors which in the end, in any normal political situation, you would think a British prime minister would grasp at the opportunity to have an election given the state of British politics at the moment. 
Jan, everyone's still in a bit of shock, and there was complete silence in Downing Street when she said she was going to call a snap election. Now, we must say... Everyone's been talking about this in Westminster ever since she became Prime Minister. She's been in a brilliant polling position against Jeremy Corbyn and against Labour, but nobody really thought she would actually have the mettle to pull the trigger. Now she has. I thought her decision not to do it earlier was one of the great acts of magnanimity in the history of politics, in that she was double digits ahead in the opinion polls, could have really cashed in and really finished Labour for the foreseeable future as a competitive force. The fact that she didn't was amazing, but I think even her magnanimity has limits. And over the weekend, we had two opinion polls putting the lead at 21 points, which is almost equal to Labour's entire vote share of, I think, 23 points. And that made it politically an unanswerable case for a snap election. But beyond that, you've got implications for Europe, implications for domestic policy, which I think will be more contentious under Theresa May than it has been under previous prime ministers, especially on grammar schools and other things. And so the logic just added up to a pretty powerful case. And the other thing as well, it's not just her party's position, it's her personal ratings against Jeremy Corbyn. That same poll you referenced, 50% of the country thinks she would make the best prime minister. Don't know is about 36%. And Jeremy Corbyn is on about 18 So There's more people don't know than want Jeremy Corbyn. And they must have just looked at this in Downing Street and thought... This is pretty much as good as it gets. Yeah, it's difficult to imagine it getting much better. Although, of course, during a seven-week campaign, you would expect the incumbent party to gain in the opinion polls anyway. So if you can imagine this, that you go into it at 21 points, and because of the traditional incumbency bias that unrolls during the campaign, you end up at something close to, dare I say, at 25 points or beyond. And I think that the poll you mentioned when it asks the leadership question implies that lots and lots of Labour voters, lots of Labour voters, would rather have Theresa May as Prime Minister. Whether that materialises on the day and you end up with hardcore Labour constituencies in the industrial north voting for a Tory Prime Minister, I find slightly harder to believe. But the potential for that is absolutely there in the survey evidence. Dare I say it, there's some Labour MPs who would prefer Theresa May to be Prime Minister than Jeremy Corbyn. some of whom have already left Parliament for almost that reason. So Miranda Green, as a watcher of Westminster Affairs for many years, the secret element of this was amazing, and we don't quite know all the details at the time of recording, but it very much looks like the Prime Minister's inner circle, her two chiefs of staff, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, made this decision, and they gave about an hour's warning of a surprise announcement. There was all sorts of speculation about what it could be, and then she fired the gun on the election with nobody, least of all I think MPs, knowing this was coming. Well that's right and I think as you've both been saying the temptation just became irresistible for them because it could possibly never ever be a better moment to reinforce her own mandate because I think it's really important to remember that since she's been Tory leader and Prime Minister, she's still had the problems inherited from the 2015 Conservative Manifesto to deal with. The mess they got into in the budget over national insurance changes, the current attempt to push through really quite radical changes to the school system, all sorts of things are inherited from the Conservative Manifesto on which David Cameron went to the country in 2015. So they can ditch that now. She can fight on a Conservative Manifesto, which is Mayism. And as Janan has pointed out, there are lots of really quite dramatic things she wants to do domestically, which are a new departure, as well as getting her own vote for the Brexit plan that she's now sort of arrived at. I think it's interesting that she has agreed to this election now, because in a sense there's a tacit admission 
that her pro-European opponents have a point in that the Brexit referendum wasn't actually a mandate for any sort of plan, but now she's going to get one. We'll come on to her, what she might do domestically in a moment, but when she stood outside Downing Street this morning, she said this is about Brexit. She said the country is united behind her, echoing her Easter message that came out. And the opinion polls do broadly show that people just want to get on with Brexit now, but she blamed everyone from Labour to the SNP to the Lib Dems to the House of Lords... And they were all against it and we need that unity in Westminster. So whether you like it or not, this is going to be a general election about Brexit. And all the people who have complained that there's not been a proper mandate for Brexit, well, they're probably going to get one. I can't really see the country now saying, actually, let's not bother with Brexit. Let's just stay in the EU. Well, quite right. Be careful what you wish for, pro-Europeans, because you're now going to be crushed by an overwhelming Conservative landslide. You know, they do have a home, potentially, for their votes in a kind of protest vote for the Lib Dems, and that resurgence will be interesting to watch. And how far that resurgence goes, because there's been a lot of talk about them sweeping seats, but the idea they might get another nine seats seems plausible, but that will test the limits of that. It will test its limits. And also, clearly, the Conservatives are likely to gain more seats from Labour than they would lose to the Lib Dems. So it won't affect the direction of the country and it won't affect Theresa May's Brexit plan. Yeah, I think pro-Europeans might be in for a tough time uh, over the next couple of years. (laughs) Agreed. You now have a prime minister who is likely to be liberated to pursue whatever type of Brexit she wants because she doesn't have to worry so much about her ability to sell it to Parliament. She'll have too big a majority to worry about that. So the the question is, what does she herself want? Where are her personal preferences? And I've been surprised how often people assume her personal preference is for a slightly softer Brexit and therefore she has to sort of face down the John Redwood's hard right bit of the Conservative Party. When in fact I think her personal preferences, her gut instinct points to a pretty severe Brexit. The fact that she hasn't even chosen to seek single market membership hasn't even tried to make a speculative attempt for it in the negotiations, or even the customs union, I think is quite telling. Her behaviour as Home Secretary was very tough on immigration, so you can see how that would influence a Brexit deal. Never done a business-facing job in politics. Tory party chairman, transport, Home Secretary, never had to really wrestle with the question of what more closed borders mean for competitiveness. If you add all that up together... I think you've got a Prime Minister who will seek quite a tough Brexit, much tougher than a lot of pro-Europeans assume. And now she's got the complete freedom to do it. She can bring back a very severe deal. She can sell it without any problem at all, which is why, looking at the market reaction today, I'm a little bit surprised. I think a lot of people assume that it's a good thing that she's liberated, because she's liberated from John Redwood, but she's also liberated from Anna Soubry and the pro-European Tories. Because the key thing here is that even if the poll's only half right, she's going to get a very comfortable Conservative majority. And the makeup of the grassroots Conservative Party is much more to the right, I'd say, of the Parliamentary Party. And they are going to select candidates that are pro-Brexit and pro-Theresa May. So she's going to have a much greater buttress, both for her domestic and international programme, after this situation. Absolutely. I mean, you can't get yourself selected as a Tory candidate these days unless you satisfy the local association of your hard line on Europe. So any new Conservative MPs are very, very unlikely to be a Ken Clark, as it were. But I think Janan made a really interesting point because who will be speaking for business under the next reinforced May administration because it will not be Tory MPs. Many of them, of course, come from a small business background, but actually business interests overall on crucial policy areas like immigration. It's going to be very interesting to what extent Number 10 actually listens when they've got this bigger majority that we expect. Especially if she uses the mandate to change her cabinet. 
and that might include even potentially a change of Chancellor Exchequer, yeah. dare I say it, because of the slight run-in that she and Philip Hammond had over the budget a few weeks ago. Because we had thought there was going to be a reshuffle anyway this summer because the Cabinet at the moment is very much a compromise to bring the Tory party together after the EU referendum. But now she'll be able to have, well, whoever she wants in her Cabinet. Because this is the key thing we're looking at here. She's going to be at the top of British politics now for the foreseeable future. She's going to have a majority for the next five years, the mandate to do what she wants domestically and internationally with no real challenge. But the question is, Janan, is Labour because the polls are obviously very bad. Jeremy Corbyn has welcomed this slightly bizarrely. So we'll just have to see how well, how badly they do. I mean, he had to welcome it. He can't show his fear or apprehension at the beginning of the campaign. But I think moderate Labour MPs are in a strange position now because for a start, they're going to have to spend seven weeks being asked whether they sincerely recommend Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister. Some of them will dissemble. Some of them will say, yes, we do, but through gritted teeth. Some of them might come out and say, actually, I can't I can't do that. But more than that, they have to hope for a result that's kind of ambiguous in that they do badly enough that Jeremy Corbyn goes, but not so badly that the party cannot recover. Because if the party is completely wrecked and it's just a parliamentary rump, then the question is raised as to whether it's worth continuing with the Labour Party or whether you fold it into some new kind of centre-left pro-EU or, or pro-48% type of political party. This could be the beginning of this realignment that we've talked about many times on this podcast before, Miranda. Ah, the... Oh, the long-desired realignment, <laughs> if you're of my cast of mind, yes. Yeah. Well, it could be, but it could, as Janan points out, be the terminal end of the Labour Party with not much else to replace it. And also, of course, we shouldn't forget that some of those Labour MPs who are likely to lose their seats are the very top-level moderates who have led the charges against Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and who have provided some internal resistance resistance to his hard left instincts. So you could see a reinforcement of a losing left wing Labour Party. Now, Janan, very briefly, Mrs May's policy platform that she's going to take to the country, Miranda was hinting at earlier, it's going to be pretty different from what David Cameron put forward. Just two years ago, last time we had a general election that was going to be grammar schools, a much more interventionist business approach, as well as a pretty tough Brexit. You know, what do you think the theme of the manifesto and the campaign is going to be from the Tories? I always think that what Theresa May reminds me of, and it's ironic or humorous given that she's so Eurosceptic, is a German Christian Democrat. So the centre-right party in Germany is not what the centre-right party in this country is. It's a bit more open to the idea of an active state in the economy, a bit more culturally conservative, less Thatcherite, more of a traditional small-c conservative party. And I think that's Theresa May's politics. And it'll be interesting to see whether that kind of idea is all over the manifesto that she comes up with in the next few weeks. So more industrial intervention... The record of that in this country is not exemplary. More selection in academic schools, a moderate version of cultural conservatism, clearly a a very tough line on immigration. It's a big break for the Tory party. All my life I've grown up with pro-market conservative leaders, or at least conservative prime ministers, for whom cultural stuff was secondary. And even immigration wasn't that prominent. I'm talking about the ones who actually made it into government, John Major, David Cameron, Margaret Thatcher. You've now got a prime minister, I think, who is a bit less focused on the economy and preoccupied with socially and culturally what kind of Britain she lives in. This is quite a strange look back to the 70s in many respects, Miranda, because this reminds me of Ted Heath's 74 election when he essentially did exactly what Theresa May is doing, is going to the country and saying, who governs? And in 74, the answer was, well, not you. And they chose Howard Wilson instead. But really, for Theresa May, there's no any risk to this because she's got such a big 
buttress in the polls and everything else, it looks like it's going to be quite easy for her, but a bad campaign for, well, pretty much Labour and a lot of others. It does, but... Politics is strange at the moment and everything carries an inherent risk, which is why she hasn't done it up to now. And there are large overhanging questions, not least that of Scotland and Northern Ireland. If we have another round of elections in Northern Ireland, which throw up results which threaten the peace process further or rather threaten home rule, that could be interesting to watch. And in Scotland, of course, Nicola Sturgeon has already said she wants to go for a second independence referendum. The SNP are excellent at milking every grievance possible. And this is one big grievance. Absolutely. We'll have seven weeks of evil Tory government in London trying to tell Scotland what to do against its best interests and that can only help the SNP despite their domestic difficulties. I think this is a huge deal. I remember in 2014 when Ed Miliband's Labour Party were comfortably ahead of the Tories in the opinion polls, the unionist campaign told me this is a great thing. We're much more likely to win a vote in Scotland for the union if people don't fear endless Tory government down south. If you have, speculatively, a three-figure Tory majority in June, a very commanding Conservative Prime Minister, a clear path towards a pretty severe Brexit, does that change the atmospherics of Scottish politics in a way that favours the SNP? You can see how it very well might. And so Nicola Sturgeon, I wouldn't be surprised if privately she hopes for, or at least can see the upside in a Tory route in Westminster, because it just makes the idea of remaining in the union a bit scarier. And I think we'll leave it there today. There's plenty more to discuss about the candidates, the policies and the election campaign ahead. Many thanks to George, Miranda and Janan for joining today. Our first podcast of election 2017. We'll be back for our regular installment of FT Politics at the weekend. Until then, thank you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.